You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 27, December 15th, 2016. Today on the show, we have Bill Wagner, who is one of the world's foremost C-Sharp developers and a member of the ECMA C-Sharp Standards Committee. He is president of the nonprofit Humanitarian Toolbox and has been awarded the Microsoft MVP Award for 10 plus years, as well as a Microsoft Regional Director. Recently, Bill was appointed to the .NET Foundation Advisory Council. All of his work in the Microsoft community, Bill has recently joined Microsoft as a senior content developer. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Great to talk to you again. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. And I was trying to think about the the world of Agile today has been really focused a lot on process and the rules, and people are always worried, am I following the rules? They go get their training. Has, has mainstream Agile, now that it's kind of gotten into the bigger organizations, has it become too process-focused? You know, at times I think it can be, and because we lose sight of the goals of being agile, which is you know looking at those those ideas of how do we get a finished product that has what we want in front of our customers as quickly as possible. You know, when you start focusing on you know did I put points on all the story cards appropriately? Did I have everybody in all the right meetings? Did I make sure all the right roles were doing all the right things? You know, then we start to get very process bound and. We can't move anymore. And I think where we really see this with enterprises is when you think of a really small organization, the startup space, you have to win by being way more innovative than those large competitors, right? You have to outmaneuver them somehow. Like five, like five or 10x more innovative, right? Right. And they have to get a lot more innovative, have to move a lot faster, have to get way in front of them. And if you think about large enterprises, they reach this point where they've been very successful and they value consistency. So it's not so much that you have to be faster than everybody else, but you have to be able to just predict when you're going to be done. And that starts to really feed toward having much more of a stable process where we know what's going to happen and we know exactly when things are going to be done. Whereas that idea of agility is to be able to move faster than you did the last time and learn from what you did and change it every time in a good way to hopefully get better. I think that's a, that underscores a lot of the misconceptions about agile that larger organizations have, right? And their, some of their benefit is the organizational inertia that they have. That's what gives them a bigger presence in the marketplace, but it's also to their detriment as well because they're not able to respond to change as quickly as some of the smaller companies like startups. Right. And then, you know, and I'm also seeing this idea that, 
You know, it's a phrase Richard Campbell uses all the time. You know, change is good. You go first. <laughs> and for large organizations that have a process, you know, there's this this dark underbelly that says, we'll teach you Agile and it'll look exactly like everything you're doing already. You know, all the same roles, all the same gates on every single thing that happens. And we'll just have a different process. It'll be just slightly different, but you'll feel really comfortable. You can still have Gantt charts predicting things out six months in the future, and you'll still be following that exact same kind of a thing. Yeah, that's actually interesting because you brought back some cold sweats on my I'm having right now and flashbacks of uh, I was I built a startup and it was very, very fast and efficient. We were very agile. And then we were acquired by an organization that wasn't that much bigger, but they were publicly traded. So they had their procedures and their Sarbanes-Oxley and all that other fun stuff. And they were agile, but only within the confound of the developer room. Everything else, the, the quote-unquote scrum master, and I put that in quotes, would take the process and the work that we were doing and all the agile estimation we were doing and put it into Gantt charts and talk to the CEO that way. And luckily, this was about 10 or 15 years ago, so I had that perspective back then even. But I've always thought that if the whole team isn't engaged, it's a, it's a sign of failure. So it seems very similar to what you're talking about. Right. And, and sometimes there are business needs that make agility something that we have to look at in a, from a different angle. You know, one, one company I worked with for quite a while when I was a consultant, their product is software that is used by tax accountants. So one important facet of that business is that your new release has to be ready the first Monday in January. If it's not ready the first Monday in January, you may as well not ship, right? Because that's when tax season starts. All the accountants are going to say, I want the new version right now, and now I'm ready to go. So while they wanted to be as agile as they could up to a point, there was this hard, fast business requirement for a date, which most other software doesn't have, right? You know, if you, if right now, if our release date was, say, you know, the following spring sometime, that's close enough to try to do a go-to-market and get some things ready. We don't have that hard business date that says, if you're not ready on this date, just don't bother shipping. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I used to work with an ISV and it taught me more before I worked at the ISV that had very, very specific release dates. I always thought agile estimation was about re-estimating the date, not necessarily re-estimating the scope of the features. Sure. And I think both of those can happen, right? But you have to know from the business which one of those is going to be your choice. Yeah. And I have some experience with similar, uh, I have some similar experience with the federal government where, you know, there's a certain date and there's a certain required scope. And then the estimation comes into place to figure out how bad the penalties will be because, you know, maybe the date's not going to happen or we're not going to get everything in there uh, by that certain date. Right. And those kind of things really come into play. But I, I still find it really interesting to look at organizations that want to call themselves agile. And, you know, looping back to my opening comments where they really don't want to, they don't want to be agile. They don't want to think about how does the process evolve over time. They want to think about being very rigid in the way that they're agile. That rings true for me. I've, I've seen that many, many times where people are just running in a certain direction and then say that they're agile, but using it more as an excuse than anything else. 
speaking of organizations that are agile and then are trying to build a process into place, you are a president of a nonprofit called Humanitarian Toolbox. I'll let you describe a little bit about what it's what it is because it's pretty interesting. But more importantly, you're building software and you're building software in an open source environment where many people are contributing from around the world. And I'd like to hear your experiences in an, env- an environment like that uh, implementing agile. Yeah, this is a real, real eye opener in a lot of ways. So what Humanitarian Toolbox does, we build open source software to support disaster relief efforts. So a couple of our applications that have been going through the uh, pilots with different uh, non-government organizations and charities that do disaster relief are uh, is an application called Already, which helps build a readiness campaign for an organization that wants people prepared for some kind of disaster that may happen. So maybe that would be, let's install smoke detectors all through this neighborhood because we know smoke detectors save lives. Or let's make sure everyone's got a preparedness plan in case of a tornado or floods, depending on you know where the location is. And the other one is called crisis check-in, which is used after a disaster event when organizations and people check in to help with the disaster. So you may be checking in people who have certain skills, either to rebuild infrastructure or their doctors or EMTs, or it may be organizations that have equipment that can be checked in. You know, um, I represent the local power company. I've got 10 bucket trucks to help us put the wires back in place. You know, I represent the local Red Cross. I've got 200 blankets, among other things, that I'm going to check in for helping with this disaster. So those are the two applications that we're really getting close to having a formal release where any organization can use them. Uh, we've been piloting them with uh, organizations, with the Red Cross in Chicago and Seattle uh, for uh, already. And for crisis check-in, we've been working with uh, Operation Dragonfire, which is through FEMA. And they're doing simulations with us after things they learned after Hurricane Sandy as to how to respond very quickly to you know, for that particular hurricane, an area that doesn't usually get them and was definitely unprepared in a lot of ways, where places like near the Gulf Coast that sees them more often is a little bit better able to to respond quickly. So taking what they learned there and then helping us apply software to it. Now, what's really interesting about an open source, all volunteer project in an agile organization is from week to week, we have absolutely no idea what our velocity is going to be. And it will change radically from week to week. We'll have a bunch of volunteers who are like, hey, I've got time between projects because I'm a consultant and I'll contribute to your project for the next two weeks. And then I won't entirely disappear, but I'll be contributing you know, one new feature every two weeks for the next six months. You know, And sometimes we'll have... Uh, corporations come in and say, we want to hold a team building event. We'll have an entire team working on your app for a weekend. And then some of them will stay engaged. Some of them will go away completely. Some of the ones that stay engaged, they're now doing it as they have time. So for us trying to plan sprints or anything like that is very difficult. So what we've taken to doing is we'll set up milestones and we'll say, okay, we've got P1, P2, and P3 things we'd like to get done on this next milestone, which is maybe two, three weeks in the future. And we'll be really happy if all the P1s get done. And if more people show up, great, let's work on the P2s and let's work on the P3s. 
and we really try to prioritize our backlog because we really don't know how many people from day to day are going to be engaged. Uh, so it's been really eye-opening to try to see how that how that works with different developers coming in and out of the project as they have time, you know, or have way too many commitments on their day job. So that's been a great experience, though, to to really watch that, and I'm really happy with a lot of the contributions that we've gotten from a lot of people and how the the overall team keeps growing. So in another interesting area, the team has now gotten quite large on both of those applications, but it's all part-time people. So they'll show up, do some work, they'll chat with each other. Even people who may be really busy will take the time to respond to some questions and the movement keeps moving forward. It's kind of neat to watch that momentum happen. What are some of the traditional agile artifacts like stand-ups? I mean, you said certain things you just can't do, right? Like sprint planning is really difficult, so team velocity is very difficult. What are the things that you can do that you've that you've you know taken from traditional agile artifacts? So with already, we do have a weekly stand-up, and if you watch our Twitter account um, HTBox, you'll see an invite to that if anybody wants to join. If they're not one of the core team members, so we do a Saturday stand-up. So once a week, we get together and kind of go over where we've been and what we're doing. Time zones make a daily stand-up really hard. You know, we have people, regular contributors from England, all four time zones in the U.S. Um, I think we've seen some other ones from continental Europe. Um, one or two people from Australia have popped in and out. So it's really hard to find a time for stand-up. So we'll use Slack to try to keep communicating back and forth. Um, What's good there, because the traffic is kind of moderate to low, you know, you can check into Slack once a day and you can see what's happened since yesterday and then kind of catch up and wait in and wait out when you get the chance. So we do try to keep the communication going as rich as possible, you know, but the but time zones really make that hard. Uh, but we definitely have the weekly stand-up. That's always been really useful. And then try to communicate in a persistent way through uh, GitHub issues and through tagging other people to help answer questions as quickly as possible. And, and while your process is very um, unique, um, are there any things, any tools or things that you're using? Like, do you have a big massive Trello board or are you doing, you know, something like that? So, so far we've been using GitHub issues to manage the backlog. And we'll, in addition to that, use the milestones so you can search for all the issues that are assigned to the current milestones and then label those with that P1, P2, or P3 tag so people can see where the board is all inside of GitHub. Um, the big one is an attitude, you know, where if you put everybody in the same room, it's pretty easy to make sure people don't get stuck, right? Because you can just walk around and you can kind of see by looking at people when you're managing them or when you're part of the team who's stuck. That's really hard when folks are remote and all over the world. So we really try to keep this attitude of trying to watch if people are disappearing, you know, ask them if they need some help, ask them if they're stuck and try to encourage people. If you get stuck at all, just tag one of the project leaders and we'll get an answer for you as quickly as we can, you know, because that's, that to me is one of the core tenets of agile is you're on a team. You don't say stay stuck for very long. You know, as soon as you really get stuck, ask a question. Uh, where can where can a developer go and volunteer for the humanitarian toolbox? If you search for HTBox on GitHub, you'll find our organization page, and that lists all the current repositories. 
And as I said, when we're recording this, uh, already in Crisis Check-In are two of the apps that we're uh, nearing our first release. And uh, we're, we've launched another one with the help of Rocky Lotka and some other people at Magenic called the Mobile Kids ID app. And the basic idea of that is so parents have on their phone information to help identify their children in case of some kind of a disaster where they need to, you know, give the authorities, you know, here's my kid's height, here's their friends, here's where we last saw them, here's a recent picture, that kind of thing. Those things are very, very helpful. I, w I was involved with the earthquake in Nepal back in 2015 and tracking all the people down and Facebook was the, was the avenue of choice for people at that point. Right. And we're looking at some other things. We're getting some requests coming in. So by the time this airs, we will probably have two other new applications with active development going on. So we'd love to get people involved. And uh, if you start at that GitHub page, all of them will have a, a readme file that describes the application, describes the tools we're using on any given application, pitch in where you've got the skills or where there's something you want to learn uh, on any given repo. There are issues that will be tagged with a jump in label. So if you're new to the project or new to the technology, look for those. Those are the ones we think a new person can dive in and, and make a contribution pretty quickly. This is awesome stuff, Bill. Uh, coming from a background of, of EMS myself, I was a volunteer firefighter and, and uh, EMT for, for, for many years. Um, I, there's a huge need and opportunity here um, for, for there to be integration between the systems and between the different various districts out there. So it's great to hear that your uh, he, humanitarian toolbox is working on, on some of that with the national with FEMA and, and um, various different other organizations. It's been really rewarding. You know, it's, it's great to work on software that can have such a positive impact on, uh, on any number, you know, on, on large numbers of people's lives. And uh, I'm really proud of all the contributors we've had and all the volunteers that have given a lot of time to really get applications where these organizations are saying, you know, we really like what you've built. Now can we have these other features? You know, which is, you know, and, th and that's when you know you've really got an application that's got a success, right? They didn't just go, oh, yeah, that's nice. They're like, that's nice. Here's what we want now. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you know they're really using it. So that's been really, really rewarding. So just switching gears a little bit, one of, the, one of the biggest things that boggles my mind is I don't know where in history that it was decided that IT is not part of, quote, unquote, the business, Right. You always hear the business and IT as if IT is off on some island of, you know, misfit toys or something like that. So what are some of the challenges you faced in reaching out to the business stakeholders and sort of um, patching the way and, and speaking each other's language and so on? Yeah, that's a, that's a problem we see both, you know, with HTBox, um, although it's less there because organizations just really want help. Um, but very much with most business customers, um, it's a very interesting problem, you know, and we've probably seen a lot of talks or seen a lot of people talk about how IT needs to move and learn the language of the business and understand the business. And there's a lot of, lot of truth in that, you know, and I think that's what makes really, really good software developers on an agile project is they're interested in learning about these other, these other disciplines, 
you know, in my career, I've worked on software that's done everything from children's games to healthcare applications to industrial automation, um, you know, automotive manufacturing, all kinds of different areas. And while I'm not an expert in any of those, I was always listening to hear what the challenges were and what was important for that business. And I think we're reaching a point now where we look at any business and IT is a core competency that that business needs, right? Whether it's legal, accounting, no matter what the business is, you have to have some IT component. And that means that the business people have to start learning the language of IT. You know, and the analogy I give for that is, you know, if you started a business, you've started reading contracts and you've had to go through all these legal documents, right? And you never look at those and go, I'm, I'm not going to understand this. You have to speak my language because your attorney is going to say, just sign it. And now you're really in trouble, right? But business people do that with IT all the time. They will go, I don't want to understand this stuff. And where I see that to become a real interesting problem is that there are a lot of things we build in software where the cost of the feature really changes depending on when we add it or how we add it and how thorough or how simply we add certain features. You know, those, those cross-cutting or horizontal concerns we talk about. You know, like add logging to a web application. Right? That's really simple when you first start and then you've got a set of APIs you can keep using. You know, add undo to a desktop application. That's pretty simple if you think about it from the beginning. But if you go to something that's had, you know, nine months of development with a team of five or 10 people, and then you say to add those things in, you know, that suddenly becomes really, really expensive. And I think for a really good, mature, agile organization, the, the people that write the software have to listen to the business, listen to the people say what the real business requirements are and get down into that in terms of, you know, why is this more important than these other things? Why is this your key, you know, your key pain point? And the business people need to learn to listen to the software people and say, why are you telling me things like continuous integration or unit tests are important? You know, why does that, why is that going to help me later with the business? And I think once they get to that point where they start to listen to each other, that's when organizations really, really get strong. And um, I, I couldn't agree more. There's been a movement, I think, of late. You heard Mayor Bloomberg saying, this was last year, 2015, he was saying he was going to learn how to code. And you have all these people saying, we're going to learn how to code and Learn the language. Business Week uh, magazine had a whole issue dedicated to code, saying what is code, and what are some of the ways you think that the business can learn to speak that technology language a little better and understand the technology? Because I don't know if the developers are going to are the right people to explain it. They're going to be very introverted and you know just say, "Hey, you need continuous integration," and then the business will say, "Why?" And they're going to say something like, oh, because it will make our builds go faster. And they're not necessarily going to translate that into a value to the business or a benefit to the business. Oh, and even sometimes I've, I've seen it worse than that. You know, I've seen people get up and, and talk about test-driven development. And their opening statement will be, I write three lines of test code for every one line of production code I write. Yeah, you don't tell a CEO that. <laughs> right. And you know the business person is just saying, wow, that's four times more expensive. Why would I do that? Right. 
I've had a CEO of a startup tell me, are we testing too much? So I can definitely agree. Right. And, and the way I try to explain things like that is when I talk about writing unit tests is I want to be able to make a change and re-execute all the tests we've ever done very quickly. So if I write an automated test that takes 10 milliseconds to run and I can push a button and execute 100 tests in a second, every time I make a change, I can execute 1,000 tests in a few minutes and feel really good that I didn't break anything. Now the CEO suddenly listens to that. You know, and that's part of that where we as technology people have to understand why things have value. You know, we kind of intrinsically understand it, right? We want a CI build so we can actually release stuff to the customer anytime you tell us you need it now, right? But we don't say it that way. We just say, on every check-in, we want to do a build. Why? Well, because then we know we should, right? So I think there is, that's where the, the first part is, is, you know, as we've been focusing, developers need to learn how to explain things to people who don't do development. You've hit on an interesting point with that. So expand more about how developers can communicate better that to the business. Because we're in this idea where we need to put things in, in others, others' frame, and then they start to understand the value. And the same thing to me with like the idea that everybody should learn to code. You know, people often hear that as, well, everybody should be a developer. No, that's not true. But to some degree, learning to code is a discipline that teaches you a lot of logic and a lot of how to describe problems. You, know, you have to describe a problem and how to solve it to a machine. So in some ways, developers should be really natural at communicating. We have to use a very strict grammar to describe to a machine how to do what we want it to do. But that doesn't really work as well with humans sometimes. So I think the skill, I think, really good people that have been able to encompass that divide between IT and the business have a really good way of describing analogies in terms of how, you know, why is something important? Why do we care about these engineering concerns? And the analogies I use, because people can see them a lot, my wife and I bought a house in Michigan in the late 80s that was built in 1903. And we spent about 20 years renovating it in different ways. So over the years, I'd had contractors come in and explain everything to me from, you know, reshingling the roof to redoing a structure and putting on a second floor addition and how they had to brace up different walls in different places to hold the weight because we're adding windows or adding a whole second story and these window bracings wouldn't hold up the second story and all these kinds of things. You can kind of see that as it gets built. So it becomes easier to understand, you know, software doesn't have that kind of visual component for people. So I would often use these building analogies and go like when I was speaking earlier, where I said, you know, we, we often don't tell business people why these horizontal concerns matter. And an analogy I use from our, our experience renovating this house is, you know, let's say I renovate a whole section of the house. And then I decide, you know what, this room is going to be my office. I want Cat5 cable running through it so that every outlet also has a network cable. Now, if I think of that before I start, it's super easy. I drop cable into the walls when they're open. It gets inspected. It gets just added right to the outlets. Drywall goes up, and I've got my wiring. If instead I think of that feature after we've put the drywall up and after we've had the rough and finished inspections, it's a super expensive feature. We have to cut open the drywall, 
rerun the cable, wait days for a new rough inspection, put the drywall back on. Because of the way you cut it, probably using partial sheets, we're going to use a lot more mud across the seams and tape it and several coats of mud and sanding. And then we're going to have to match the paint and we're going to have to prime it. And then we have to have the finished inspection now with the new wiring in. So this feature that maybe would have cost another $50 now suddenly costs several thousand dollars, right? And that's the idea of getting the business to understand when engineering says, I want to do this first, starting to talk about that in terms of why doing this first is going to save you money. So that's, and those kind of analogies, I think, really help the executives see that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I've actually went as far as writing blog posts saying that developers and CTOs should learn accounting and, and other business business development and sales so they can then speak in the language to the business. And then I think the business can learn backwards, right? So I think it's uh, what you're what you're saying is great. Oh, absolutely true. You know, and and I think that would also help our industry in a lot of buzzword things, right? You know, everything is, you know, I've got to be in the cloud. I need microservices in the cloud. Okay, why? <laughs> you know, and it's become such a buzzword so fast is the one right now. Um, and the same thing with agile to some degree, right? We need to be agile because that's better. Okay, what is that going to do for you? You know, and we have the things that we say it should do. You know, we should be able to release things faster. We should be able to innovate better. We should be able to have better productivity in a lot of ways. And if we do it right, we should get those benefits. But it should all come back to we should get those benefits and those benefits should be important. So with that in mind, Bill, what, what do you think the future holds for Agile? I think it's going to get more mature and we're going to understand more how different um, different styles of Agile work better for different organizations and really starting to understand what the values are as we try to put different processes in place. Um, you know, I've heard people go, oh, no, NASA shouldn't do Agile. I'm not sure that's true, right? I think it can, but I think it has to understand what that means in terms of delivery to something in outer space. You know, another organization that's really trying to struggle with how do we do Agile because Agile has to bend is different parts of the auto industry. Because if you think of updating the software that runs in a car, traditionally now that means a recall. Because what you're going to have to do is bring all those cars into a dealer. They're going to have to flash the memory for whatever computer component it is, whether it's the engine module, transmission module, entertainment module, whatever. That's really expensive, you know, from a business standpoint. And that's a very different kind of agility to be able to try to say, how can we actually deliver this and run an agile organization when after a certain point, updates become really, really hard? Or are they going to just solve that update problem? You know, Tesla's got some interesting things there in terms of being able to update controllers uh, through a, an owner's home Wi-Fi, which is probably a really cool solution. But, um, you know, I think we're going to see how to apply Agile in places where it hasn't been. You know, um, medical is another one. You know, you want to, do you really want to uh, run the latest build on your ultrasound machine that's trying to blast a, you know, blast a tumor? Maybe not. But uh, we'll have to think about how to try to get that same kind of 
velocity and the same kind of things moving and still have the right gates in place because of business needs. And uh, I, I just want to go on record. I woke up one morning and my Tesla was another inch off the ground because of an, a Wi-Fi update, uh, an update over my Wi-Fi to the car. They actually raised the car up uh, almost an inch to deal with an issue, which all through software. Yeah, and I think that is that they have, they are probably the most innovative company when it comes to applying software and software techniques into the automotive space. Yeah, for sure, and I see it happening over and over again. It uh, it keeps coming in with new new features like the self driving features and all this other kind of stuff just coming over the air as they innovate on the car. Uh, one last question is, what's next for you over the next year or so? Any any great things you're working on or keynotes or is a humanitarian toolbox going anywhere pretty special or your stuff you're doing at Microsoft? So I'll put two different things in there. And in the humanitarian toolbox, you know, having the applications that we're working on really be used by, you know, in the field, not just in pilots, but in the field by these organizations, you know, that's that's a super important big milestone for the organization. You know, to have said that these people who volunteered their time to create something, it is now really saving lives. And I think that's going to be a huge, a huge bit for us. Um, so that's, that's the big, the big thing I'm driving toward. In the professional life working with Microsoft now, um, a big reason why I took this position is watching .NET and .NET Core, where it's now running on a Mac, running on Linux, you know, so you can build your ASP.NET website and deploy it on Linux, deploy it on a Mac, um, you know, run C Sharp on any device is really a cool thing for me. So having a role of being able to really start to teach developers whose experience may be in Java or Scala or JavaScript if they did all client-side things and get them learning .NET and C Sharp and see if that, uh, you know, what a my own belief is that I think they'll be more productive because I love the language. I love the things that have been done there and be able to truly compete on these other platforms is going to be a lot of fun. Bill, thanks for giving us your insight and perspective and thanks for being on our show and thanks for all your volunteer work in emergency services. Well, thank you very much. Next week on Agile Next, Rob Richmond. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.